Welcome to the Mere Catholicity Podcast, pursuing ecumenism through theological discussions and dialogues. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mere Catholicity Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Saller, and if you like this show and would like to see more episodes, more interviews with guests, more videos, generally speaking, and just more content from me, please click the link below and join my Locals page. There you will not only find a good community of mere Catholics that have a dedication to the Catholic faith, to growing in Catholicity together, but you will also find that you yourself will be edified. You will grow with these people. We have a Discord. We jump on there. We have voice calls. I'm trying to grow this community so that it becomes bigger and a more centralized place where Christians from various denominations can come together and have true and meaningful dialogue that will help to unify some of the fragments and fractures that we have experienced within our various jurisdictions. So, not only will you help me make content, you will join with a good community of Catholic Christians. If that's of interest to you, please click the link below. And if you cannot join locals or don't want to join locals, at least subscribe, like, and share this podcast so that other people can find it and hopefully be edified. Now, getting into today's episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about the early church fathers. This is kind of a long answer to what we're talking about today, but I want to talk about the early church fathers, the phronema, or the mind of the early church fathers, how that relates to the way in which we do theology today, and some of the areas in which I feel like maybe we have fallen off the phronema of the early church. So I know that's a lot, but I'm going to try to break it down and show my thought process. I, I want to start by saying that this idea came to me due to a kind of coincidental encounter. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he had asked me a question about Reformed theology and the specific theological emphases that you find within Reformed theology, and why some of those emphases sometimes seem out of uh, alignment with the greater Catholic consensus regarding certain theological emphases. And so I was thinking, I wonder why that is. Why do some traditions emphasize some things differently than other traditions? Why do they condemn certain things that other traditions view as good and helpful? Icons, saints might be a good example of this. You see, you know, invocation of the saints in Catholicism. You see the veneration of icons in Eastern Orthodoxy. And in some of the Reformed traditions, these things are not just not practiced, but they're actively condemned. Okay, how can we who are reading the same scriptures that are reading the same tradition come to such different understandings of what it means to be a Christian and more specifically what it means to practice that Christian faith? So I was thinking about this, and I came to a conclusion in my head that I wrote back to him, and I said, I think, I think this is it. And no joke, about a week later, I was reading this book, Fathers and Anglicans, The Limits of Orthodoxy by Arthur, Arthur Middleton, and the very same thing that I had been thinking about that I saw as potentially being the, the distinction between some of these traditions was something that Arthur Middleton notes in his discussion about the Anglican divine Richard Hooker. And so I was like, oh, I actually have somebody far more knowledgeable than me that's also making this similar connection. So I started kind of digging into the early church, into the way in which 
the patristic period developed and the theology and the way that they approached theology with this idea of the phronima, the mind of the church fathers, in my head. And I thought to myself, okay, it seems to me that Anglicanism in particular out of all, and I'm, I'm specifically speaking within the Reformational traditions, it seems like Anglicanism in particular within Reformational traditions has done a very, very good job at maintaining a continuity with the ancient church that I don't see a lot of other perspectives having. And I think it's because Anglicans have really, truly captured the phronema of the early church in a way that other traditions may not have quite as much. Now, obviously, I'm biased, and people watching this are going to go, oh, Jonah, that's your bias being read into it. But I want to at least play this out, and I, I, in the very least, I want you guys to hear it and either agree or disagree or at least go, hmm, that's interesting, and then think about it yourself, and we have some discussion and dialogue about it. So, as I'm reading the early church, and I'm working through the texts of the early church fathers, really, uh, I think Lancelot Andrews puts it very well. The early church can be defined by the first five centuries. The tail end of that is really the kind of formulation of the Nicene Creed, and then that becoming kind of the expression of Christianity widespread. This is the ecumenical, the ecumenical creed of the church. And not just a creed in terms of, oh yeah, this is a nice thing that we say on Sundays, but this is the faith of the church. When we confess the Nicene Creed, we are confessing the faith of the church. And so when it comes to kind of looking and saying, okay, what is the mind of the early fathers? I don't think we need to look much further than the Nicene Creed and the specific things that it emphasizes. And the one thing that I think comes out on top when you just look at the early councils of the church, the Nicene Creed, and you ask the question, what was the theological emphasis by which these councils, what was the theological emphasis that these councils focused on hammering out very early on? And what is the theological emphasis that undergirded the theological method and approach universally in the early church? And the answer that I have come to is the incarnation. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, Christology, but specifically the incarnation, is the very center of theological method and approach in the early church. I don't think many people would disagree with this. I think most people would say that's exactly right. And so when I look at this and I see that that's the emphasis, I then look at all the theology that kind of surrounds that center. So if the incarnation is the center, you have to ask the question, okay, all the other theological perspectives and doctrines and dogmas of the church that surround this supposed incarnation, are they linked to it? Are they linked to it in a way that it would be plausible to say that this is only a doctrine in the church or this has been formulated in this particular way by the church because of this particular theological center? I think the answer is yes. Why do we venerate icons? Because of the incarnation. Why do we understand that the saints in heaven are praying for us? Because of the incarnation. Why do we believe that somehow bread and wine can also be body and blood? Because of the incarnation. How can it be that there is an invisible grace 
in a visible sign because of the incarnation? How do we believe that heaven and earth are coming together as one because of the incarnation? You see, all of the great Catholic theological perspectives, all of the great Catholic um, doctrines, all have their origin and root in the incarnation. And Arthur Middleton, he really sees this. He recognizes this. There's a section in here that I wanted to read if I could. If I can find it. I thought I marked it, but maybe I didn't. So listen to this, yeah. It says, The technical term phronema is used for what is called the patristic mind, whose real foundation Hooker found to be in scripture, tradition, and reason. This placed him in a much larger room than his contemporary opponents and made him more quickly and more acutely aware of dangers in the wider theological scene, which in their preoccupation with changes of belief in the secondary doctrines of the Reformation, they had been slow to spot. The dangers that threatened were in the form of old heresies in a new dress, which were directed at fundamental doctrines such as the Trinity and the Incarnation and came from Anabaptists. His awareness, listen to this, his awareness finds its focus in Hooker's exposition of the Incarnation and in his doctrine of the sacraments, which are implied by a religion of the Incarnation and organically connected with it. In making the Incarnation central, Hooker differed from his opponents who were preoccupied with doctrines of justification, grace and predestination, and the grounding of their reality in a subjectivism where personal experience and private judgment counted most. Here, individualism is set up over against the corporate and effects attitudes towards religious institution, among them creeds and sacraments. Hooker's concern is with objectivity in religion and the right balance of priorities in the mutual relations between the objective and the subjective. Fundamental to Hooker's theology is the presence of creeds without which corporate religion has no ground, and when faith is reduced to a purely personal and individual possession, finds itself inadequate in its task. Now, obviously, the context kind of moved on, but the point is that one of the things that set Anglicanism, because Hooker was a very, very uh, strong presence within the formation of kind of classical Anglicanism, one of the things that was central in his emphasis was the incarnation because he saw in the early church fathers that that was their emphasis. And he realized, I think correctly, that if that center is removed, your doctrine is going to fall apart in a lot of other areas like sacramentology is going to fall apart your understanding of the communion of saints is going to fall apart your understanding of iconography is going to fall apart things like that are going to fall apart now some might say well jonah richard hooker was no fan of the veneration of icons either and that may be true but we also have to understand him in his context and recognize that with the kind of abuses that were going on with superstition in medieval rome there was definitely, I think, a good and healthy pushback against any kind of veneration. Um, because at the time, the veneration was not being distinguished, especially amidst the laity, with the proper, uh, w with any sort of meaningful strength that would actually communicate that this is not meant to be worship. I think now we live in a different context. 
a different era. I think that is understood perfectly well, and therefore we're no longer in the danger that those in that particular time period were. I will say that I think Hooker's, the logical conclusion of his theology would be the veneration of icons, but I'm getting sidetracked from my main point. My main point is that the incarnation is at the very center of theological inquiry. And if we do not have that as the very center, and we place something else at the center, all of the surrounding doctrine of the Christian faith is going to be impacted. <coughs> so, for example, in the case of the Reformed tradition, as I, sh as I said earlier, one of the things you see is a much lower sacramental theology. The bread and the wine don't actually become anything other than bread and wine. It stays bread and wine. And the only thing that happens is when we eat, we are nourished spiritually and inwardly. There's a, there's a disconnect between the sign and the thing signified in a much more stark way. And for those who say, well, Jonah, the Anglican view is the Reformed view as well. I think the Anglican view is the very best of the Reformed view, a very high view of that reality in the way that it's expressed. But if you look at the majority of the actual Reformed traditions today, the Dutch Reformed, the Presbyterians, etc., most of them have an almost Zwinglian approach to their Eucharistic theology. And you have to go, okay, that's very interesting. Their sacramental theology is much lower. It tends towards a lack of reverence, a lack of ritual, a lack of the altar being the centerpiece of the church, etc. Very interesting. What else is ajar? Well, their understanding of the communion of saints is also very strangely lacking. Um, you know, when somebody dies, they go to heaven and they're with the Lord, but there is no sense in which you and I are still united to them in any sort of way that we could pray for one another, etc. Again, it's interesting, not necessarily the end of the world, but it's an interesting thing. Now, just taking those examples, there, there's more that I could give, but just taking those examples, I think the question we would have to ask is, okay, why are those things different than you would say find in, say, an Anglican church or an Orthodox church or a Roman Catholic context? I think the fundamental reason is for the Reformed, the theological emphasis by which all the rest of their theology is formed is not the incarnation as it was in the early church. It's the sovereignty of God. And so when the sovereignty of God becomes the theological centerpiece around which all the rest of theology is done, you're going to end up with a deficient theology of the sacraments. Because if the, if the incarnation does not inform you, fundamentally inform your view of the sacraments, but instead the sovereignty of God does, then that's how you're going to understand the sacraments. And I think this is very clear. Why do the Reformed take the view that they do of the sacraments? It is precisely because of their doctrine of predestination. They believe that the only ones who receive the body and blood of Christ are what? The elect, the faithful. Those who are not of the elect, those who are not of Christ, those who are maybe in the covenant but not actually regenerate believers— those people only receive the, the sign, for it is true faith, which is given only to the elect, that can actually take, eat, and drink the sign unto salvation. So that view 
The way in which their Eucharistic theology is formed comes directly from their doctrine of predestination, which comes directly from their theological emphasis of the sovereignty of God. And the same goes with the communion of saints. Well, you can't pray to the saints, you can't do that. Well, why is that? Again, it all traces to a de-emphasis on the incarnation and the implications of that for how we relate as the body of Christ, and an emphasis on the sovereignty of God, on predestination, on election, on justification, on all these kind of tertiary issues that don't, don't have a, a central part in theology, but actually are downstream and flow out of our understanding of Christology and the incarnation. Same goes with Baptists. I would say that Baptists, <clears throat> they, at the center of Baptist theology, is the interpretation of Holy Scripture. Scripture, the Word. The Word is the center of their life. Well, Jonah, isn't that the center of all Christian life? Shouldn't the Word? Yes, but again, the Word itself, the script, the Holy Scriptures itself, are downstream from the Incarnation. The way in which we use them, the way in which we understand them, the way in which they inform our lives as Christians has to be understood through the Incarnation. And if that's flipped, where now the scriptures are informing us about all of these other things, and the scriptures take the centerpiece, and the scriptures are the center of the church, the altar is pushed to the side, and everything starts there, you're going to end up with a word and no sacrament church. And a word without sacrament is similar to, honestly, the idea of the Logos without him becoming flesh, right? Because in a sense, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us is made manifest in the reality of the incarnation, obviously, but is made manifest within the sacrament of the church. The word, this is my body, this is my blood, the words of institution combined with the action of taking bread and wine and breaking them, actually brings about the incarnational reality that lays at the center of our theology. But if that's not part of it, oh, well, we could do communion once a month. It's just a memorial. The real emphasis of our church is going to be the Word of God, because the Word of God is above all. Word without sacrament tells me that you have also started with something that is insufficient in actually bringing about your theology. So, all of this to say, when it comes to actually attaining and reaching the mind of the early church, the mind of the fathers, which I do believe is an actual um, cohesive thing. It's not as scattered as people think. I think we must start with the incarnation. The incarnation is the very center of theological inquiry, the very center by which all other theology finds itself, finds its identity, finds its correct articulation. And I think if we look at the early church and we watch them do theology, we will see that this is absolutely the case. And when we look at the churches today and we ask, why is there all this theological variance? I think it, be, it is largely because the emphasis of theology, 
the emphasis of where our starting point is, what forms all the rest of our theological endeavors, has been misplaced. I think for the Baptists, like I said, it's oftentimes taking the physical Bible and making that the centerpiece. I think we could also say that it's the idea of conversion. The conversion experience can take center space, um, a profession of faith. And when you have the profession of faith as kind of being the center by which all the rest of theology is done, it kind of falls apart. For the Presbyterians, for the Reformed traditions, I think it's the sovereignty of God. For the Lutherans, I think it's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And for the Anglicans, I think we've done pretty good. If anything, I think Anglicans need to become more aware of this root and this true attempt from our early divines at making this the center of our theology. And I think many of us are conscious of this, but I think some of us are unconscious of this and we're grabbing from the reform tradition we're grabbing here and we don't have like this cohesive center to say, okay, this is our starting point. Now let us grab what is valuable insofar as it is related to and flows out of a biblical patristic incarnational theology. And so I think all traditions should take time to intentionally Look at the early fathers, look at the incarnation, study the incarnation, meditate on the incarnation, sit in awe of the mystery of the incarnation, and allow your theology to flow out of that. If we can do that, I think we will actually be on a good path forward to becoming a more united church. But if we fail to do that, making theological emphases apart from the incarnation, I think we're going to continue to see our fundamental, the fundamental aspects about the way in which we practice the faith, our sacraments, the way in which we exposit the word of God, the way in which we understand the saints, the way in which we understand history, the way in which we understand ecclesiology. All of this is going to fall apart if it is not rooted in the incarnation. And I totally forgot to mention ecclesiology. That's another big one. If we fail to recognize the incarnation, we are going to fail to uphold the episcopate. <laughs> We're going to fall into congregationalism or we'll fall into Presbyterianism. And there is a real sense in which the incarnation informs even our church government, even apostolic succession. All of these things flow from the incarnation. So, brothers and sisters, with that, I will end this podcast episode, but I would encourage you all... Think more about the Incarnation and call your leaders in your churches to think more about the Incarnation. And let us return to the phronema of the early church fathers that we may think like them and in thinking like them we might be more Catholic.